0: The show goes on. This is the official show on the Fish Stripes Podcast. Once again, I'm Eli Sussman, partnered up with Lewis Adia Weiss to take you down aisle three of Marlin's off-season shopping series here on the pod. That we still have a couple more weeks to go. We have a couple previous editions of the series that you could check out on the same feed wherever you're listening to right now to get a better understanding of the exercise. But for the second straight week, we get. Ambushed by an update on Miguel Rojas last week is when Miggy himself explained that him and the Marlins were close to finalizing a contract extension uh, on top of the one that he already had for the second time already under this new front office getting an extension. And now here recording on Wednesday, by the time you guys are listening to it on Thursday, they'll have an announcement of this new extension that takes them all the way through now 2023. He was ready under contract for 2022 at a $5.5 million salary. They're going to tack on an additional year. Overall, it's it's two years and $10 million, but it's really only one new year of money. It's, it's only $4.5 million of new money going to Miguel Rojas. We talked about him on, on top of the previous pod, and I think we threw some numbers back out there. I mean, all things considered, Lewis, I'm surprised by how team-friendly these terms are. It seems like a bargain,
1: right? Yeah, we were kind of just discussing that before we came on and that, you know, we saw with DJ LeMahieu last off season when he re-signed with the Yankees, teams were offering about 70 to 80 million, but then the Yankees kind of came in and gave him that additional year and the additional 15 million. And not to say that Miguel Rojas may have had an offer out there from the Marlins that would have given him say 20 to 25 million, but and a, a six, another six to eight million dollars could be a deal breaker with another player that we try to pursue this offseason. Whether it's a Casiano or and a number of the big name guys that we've kind of preeminently kind of said, like, hey, we're going to be in the market to spend this offseason. So it could be something that helps us out in the end. And I kind of speculated with you prior, like it could have been something that he said, like, hey, I, you know, money's not necessarily a deal breaker here. I just kind of want to be able to say. Like if I if I want to be here, I want to win, and if that means leaving some money on the table, then I'll do everything I can to ensure that we have the funds to spend to get one of these preeminent players in the sport. Yeah,
0: it's it surprises me a little bit. I thought he would push them a little more. I thought even if he accepted a discount, that there was a middle ground where, um, I think any way you slice it, I just thought he was going to get more than this. That the market would value him more highly than this. And as long as he's happy, I'm happy. That's kind of the how I would sum it up. That. We'll see exactly how happy he is when he hopefully addresses the media on Thursday. And yeah, go ahead.
1: No, no, no. Well, I was going to say with hindsight being 2022, I'm sure being that he's a very observant person, you know, and we've kind of said this before, how he's able to give kind of accurate assessments of the way that the team is performing and maybe how individual players are doing and, you know, guys, particular strengths and weaknesses, he may have, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty for him, being that he is observant, he may have seen the free agent market for shortstops. And, you know, saying the hypothetical the Marlins decline his option and he's a free agent, he knows he's not going to really get all that much in the market as opposed to guys, say, like, you know, like Correa or Seager or, or, you know, all of these guys that are out there trying to get the big money contract. So, it, in a sense, it's just an additional means of security for him that he's going to at least be employed. And regardless of what happens, I think he you know, he'll be in the sport for a long time once this extension kind of runs its course because he's a clubhouse guy. And I know analytics have kind of said like, hey, that's not really a tangible thing that matters, but you're kind of seeing it with Atlanta where guys like that, you know, Jock Peterson, Adam Duvall, and Eddie Rosario collectively aren't the best of players in the sport, but what they provide as far as a culture is concerned is enough to say, hey, like it can push the team over the top and Look where they are now. They're in the World Series. So, you know, that's important. And I think that's one thing that's going to give Mickey Rowe staying power. And I think the Marlins kind of saw that and said, hey, like, we want to keep this guy around because our guys benefit from him being there.
0: It's it's something so rare for this Marlins organization if he at least begins that 2023 season in Miami. He joins Luis Castillo, the only guys in franchise history to play at least nine seasons with the Marlins. Those are, that's it. It's just those two. And for now it's only Castillo, but it's a pretty elite club that you got there. And you hope that eventually the Marlins have larger club of those guys that are essentially lifers with the organization. Uh, Earlier on this day, um, we're pretty proud to record a live stream with Glenn Geffner, the Marlins radio voice. It was supposed to be about an hour and it went like an hour or 15. So that, that was streaming on YouTube, Twitter and Twitch. I'm going to put it up on this podcast feed as well. So if you guys are listening to this episode, you should be able to just scroll down a tiny bit and find that fish stripes live stream with Glenn Geffner. And we continue to record those usually on Wednesday nights, all throughout the Marlins off season. So with that intro out of the way, I guess we'll get back to our off-season shopping series about guys that we hope the team would target as players to complement Miggy Rowe on this roster heading into next season. This is aisle three. This is the third episode working our way up based on how these players performed the previous year. Uh, The first aisle was players that were essentially replacement level or worse. Then we ticked it up a tiny bit in one win increments. This in aisle three players that this past season, according to baseball reference, produced war between 2.1 and 3.0. And just a more simpler way to put it is for an everyday player at that level, you're, if not average, perhaps slightly above average um, in terms of war. And if you are, we're going to get into some of these guys as well with relief pitchers. If you're able to hit that kind of number in just one season, that reflects elite performance, like all-star caliber performance And those are some guys for sure that we know that the Marlins have a particular need in that area as well. We'll be a a smaller number of players that we're focusing on this episode, but that just gives us the opportunity to spend more time and more attention on those individual guys. I think as, as it turns out, like the previous episodes, we've generally started with pitchers and kind of worked our way to hitters, and I know you mentioned before no starting pitchers on your list, but are there any big-name relievers that stick out to you?
1: Yeah, there's two that I actually have here. Um, Well, actually, I have three that are... I mean, they're all established names because they've been in the big leagues for a period of time. I mean, obviously they've accrued enough service time to be able to hit free agency. Um, I'll kind of go in in, kind of like ascending order as far as who I think would be the biggest bet as far as like what as far as the difference they would make first. I mean, he's pitching in the World Series right now. I like him a lot. I'm a big Kendall Graven guy with the way that he's kind of kind of made that transition where you know before when he was with Oakland and when he first came up with Toronto, he was a league average starter, but you kind of saw a little bit more in there. You know, he had good stuff, a low three-quarter arm angle. He was throwing low to mid-90s, good uh, breaking ball, and you know, he's had a little bit of injuries, he's had some command issues and now he's kind of just transitioned to this elite reliever i mean we saw at the beginning of the year with seattle he was you know he had an era plus near 400 so he was among the better relievers in the sport and then he went to houston and kind of normalized a little bit but i still think he i mean an excellent year overall 177 era i mean the FIP was 319 but even then it's not i mean he got you know he got a little bit lucky because he's he played for two teams so you know who had elite defensive players, you know, you had Correa at shortstop in Houston, you had JP Crawford in Seattle. So, and he had Mitch Hanniger in right field. I mean, and then you just, you know, teams that are relatively defensively sound. And a lot of that too, with the with the fit BRA differential comes in the fact that he wasn't really punching guys out as much as you'd think. I mean, he had 61 Ks and in 56 innings this season, but he's, you know, been, other than that, he's been excellent. I mean, you look, even if you just look at the percentile rankings, on Statcast, you kind of see that 2021 is not necessarily a fluke, and that maybe he could sustain this. He last year he had a he was in the fourth percentile in average exit velocity, which you know means that he's getting hit pretty hard. And then you move up to 2021, and he's in the 79th percentile. One thing I would be a little bit concerned about with signing a guy like this is his fastball spin rate has gradually been declining. I think this year he was in the forty-third percentile in spin rate with his fastball, and the curveball isn't an elite spin guy. But we saw last this year that a guy like Zach Thompson, who isn't known to really get a lot of spin on his four seam or his curveball, had success in Miami. So not to say that it can't work. What I mean, what did your what's your take on Graven? I think. Some team will give him a two year deal just because obviously the stuff plays and maybe there's another team that can kind of say like, hey, like we can discover a little bit more swing and miss and what you already have. But I I mean, I like Kendall Graven. I don't think he would be like a slam dunk like closer for us, but I think he has the ability to fill multiple roles in the bullpen. And if anything, he could even give you some length in the pen as well.
0: And I remember very vividly when he was traded from Seattle to Houston, how that was a big controversy, or at least they made it in in Seattle because they thought they were still in contention. And as you mentioned, that especially early in the year, he was his run prevention was as good as anybody. He only allowed three earned runs uh, with Seattle in the first half of the season. And then it did normalize a little bit with Houston, but it's still great across the board an unusual guy because he was exclusively a starter for all those years in Oakland. And then he was out in 2019 and came back with Seattle. And that's when they kind of transitioned him to this different role. The VLO played up enough so that, yeah, he's still missing bats at an above average level uh, compared to this, especially by Marlins bullpen standards, where there just weren't a whole lot of guys that were doing it at this level. He was a guy that I did have uh, jotted down. I mean, the one that, um, on the reliever side, that first came to mind to me was Rasel Iglesias of the I Angels have him too. So yeah. there's
1: a crossover. Of, of course, he
0: spent a bunch of years with the Reds before coming over here, and this is going to be his first crack at a uh, free agency. I finally he made these comments weeks ago uh, in Spanish that uh, caught my attention a little bit, but I wasn't able to like I'm not fluent in Spanish, so I wasn't able to totally confirm them. But I want to give a shout out to uh, Daniel De Vivo, who is uh, very passionate. Marlins Twitter follower who is bilingual. And he was able to translate for me about what he said, where he did single out the Marlins as like his preferred free agent destination in such a way that he said, like, if the offer that the Marlins make, this is paraphrasing. If the offer the Marlins make to me is within $10 million, I'd leave 10 million on the table compared to the highest offer if the Marlins are interested. They give him anything in the ballpark of what other teams give him that. He would prefer to pitch here. He is he is Cuban, so that proximity to his his family, I guess, and maybe his off season home, it plays a factor in here. He, I mean, he had had a few good seasons with Cincinnati even before being traded to uh, LA over the winter, but he just took it to a whole nother level this past year. That's going to be a wrap of the
1: 2021 season. Rysell Iglesias puts a nice bow tie. On a fabulous individual performance. And the Angels take two out of three from a team that was in contention until
0: the very end to wrap up their season schedule. I mean, 103 strikeouts out of the pen is it's one of the highest totals in the league. Uh, he has, at times, had a home run issue. I mean, he allowed 11 home runs in 70 innings this year. He's had a couple of years in the past where he's allowed even more than that in in less innings. He has been pretty durable, uh, for what it's worth, to be a reliever. I don't think he's been on the injured list for any reason since like 2016, and he is similar to Graveman uh, age-wise. He is in a nice spot going into his age 32 season at this point. Worth 2.8 Baseball Reference WAR uh, this past year. He's got he's got overpowering stuff, both his his fastball and his off speed, and he's just got a really consistent track record of performance. I mean, ever since he's, he's been in the majors, it's just, I mean, compared to Graveman in particular, the asking price, I think is going to be, that could be an issue for the Marlins because we just know that whether it's starters or relievers so far, they have not made any like big investments in individual pitchers. And with him, he's pretty clearly an exclusive reliever at this point. So you're only going to get 70 innings, maybe 75 over the course of the year, if you're lucky he is even if uh, like the number that I threw out there, that if there's a $10 million difference in offers between him and another team, I think that means like if they offer him 50 million over four years compared to 60 million, those are the type of numbers that we're talking about. It's a little hard uh, to pin down. You know, there've been some cases where relievers uh, are make a lot less on the free agent market than you expect, but given his age and his steady track record and his swing and miss um I I think that that's it's going to be unlikely just because of the uh, the total expectation for him in terms of the contract that he's looking for.
1: What ages well with him, and I'm glad you didn't touch on it because I really wanted to make this point: is his command has kind of been elite for a majority of his career, and now you know, obviously, he has had a problem with the long ball, and you know, obviously, if you're going to leave. If you're not going to walk a lot of guys, you're throwing more pitches in the strike zone. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna give up the occasional home run. But we also have to note that, like the numbers that he put up for the majority of his career, and we shouldn't forget either that a lot of his damage early, when he was putting up a couple of seasons of sub three RAs came as a starting pitcher. So he is, he has kind of become in recent years this reliever that, like I preface with Graveman, can give you multiple innings. But he's also shown that he can close. The command, though, is the one thing that is maybe the calling card for him. And, you know, I, as far as deals that I'm thinking about, he could possibly get, you know, I'm look, I'm ideally seeing like Liam Hendricks money, maybe three for 51. You know, the fourth year, let's say, you know, if you make it 60 million, but he wants to leave some money on the table. That, I mean, you know, if we get a guy like that for four years, 50 million, 12 and a half million a year. For the value that he's accruing at the position that he's – now he's not going to be a three-win pitcher every season. I mean, like, you know, people who do that, you know, there's only one Mario Rivera. So very seldom that we're probably going to see that again. But a lot of the peripherals just even say that, you know, this isn't fluky. I mean, Eli, over the last two years and in a get-2020 an abbreviated season, 134 strikeouts and 17 walks. Yeah, crazy in, in high leverage situations because he's primarily pitching the eighth and ninth inning. That's a 7.9 strikeout to walk ratio. That's like having Kurt Schilling in the ninth inning with the same stuff and just that the ability to command the ball. I, my, the note I put on him when I was getting ready for this podcast today was he's going to be the most coveted reliever on the market. The Yankees are going to be in on him for sure because obviously their bullpen isn't as mighty as it once was. They don't have Chapman on the books anymore, but the Marlins probably need him more than any team if you're looking at, like, stable. I mean, Sandy Alcantara would probably wins two or three more games if, you know, a guy like Rysele Iglesias is closing games for them. He finished in the 98th percentile in K and chase rate, so not only is he just peppering the strike zone, he's also striking out. You know a good majority of hitters, 99th percentile and whiff rate. Right? Again, he's just getting a lot of swing and miss, 97th percentile and expected ERA and expected weighted on base. So he's really not getting cheated. And then you want to kind of divert from u- uber saber metrics look at the fit to ERA, a 257 ERA in Angel Stadium, Pitchers Park. Okay, but a 283 fit, he's not really getting cheated. Yeah. And you know. He also did a lot of that early in the season when he has a guy like Jose Iglesias there who, you know, we marvel at a guy like Jose Iglesias' defense. Jose Iglesias was minus 20 defensive runs saved at second base and shortstop this year. So, you know, the Leather's seen better days for him. And he's, you know, he's was essentially getting it done with a less than stellar defensive team. And Anderton simmons list team over in uh, L.A., but I mean, I I love him. I I, I was kind of glad you had him on there too because he if there's a if there's a reliever big white whale that most teams should have circled on their list, I think it will be him because of the age, the durability, and the performance speak for itself. Liam Hendricks had two, three really good seasons before he got paid. Iglesias has had you know three, he just had four or five. So right. I think he's going to be very valuable in the market. I, I mean. Miami signing him would make that bullpen two times as good as it already was. And, you know, Stoudemire can, you know, Mel Stoudemire pitching coach does a good job with pitchers for the most part. So, you know, I, I think he'd be a great addition to the team.
0: The one other reliever that I had written down was Andrew Schaafen, who finished the year with Oakland. And prior to that was with the Cubs. He quietly had a, a pretty crazy year. I, I mean, by war, he put up 2.9 this season, He's he's someone that, I mean, came from very modest backgrounds. Like different from Iglesias, Iglesias got that big contract immediately coming to the majors, whereas Chafin, for a lot of his career, was in middle relief for the Diamondbacks. This year, I was surprised by like how often he pitched in high leverage situations. Because aside from WAR, I was looking at when probability added and seeing that Shafin was like near the top of the list this past season because he was pitching in so many high leverage situations, both in setup and like pretty briefly as a closer. And so he was, he was getting the job done in such a way that he was one of the most impactful relievers in baseball uh, this year. He's uh, he, I love his, his personality. He's yeah. he's outwardly one of the most
1: smarter t-shirts.
0: Yes. Yeah. He he's, he's great. He's great in that aspect for, for what it's worth uh, to have that he is going to be entering his, what age 32 season at, at this point last year, 1.83 ERA less swing and miss than a couple guys. Well, actually, I mean, he did have a lot of swing and miss back in like 2018, 2019, but it was down a little uh, this past year. And the one thing that he does repeatedly is keep the ball in the ballpark at an elite level. Only four home runs allowed this past season and only, only less one home run every 17 innings in his career. Um, and that's something that's been pretty consistent, uh, in that aspect. So th- the stuff isn't traditional, like wipe out closer stuff. Um, but he, he has at times been able to get out both lefties and righties. He's pitched to, uh, as you would expect for a guy that is doing such a good job at, uh, preventing home runs. He's had times where he's had pretty elite ground ball rates. Although that also came down, uh, this past season, uh, he, certainly his asking price would be a lot lower than somebody like Iglesias. So I think he's definitely more realistic in that regard. And he's not a total free agent at this moment because he does have a mutual option in his deal with the A's at what, five and a half million, five point seven five, 5.75 with some incentives baked in. Uh, usually those get declined one way or the other. I would guess that he declines it because I think he'll be in the market for a multi-year deal for someone that pretty quietly has had this consistent track record and now has like proved it in these high leverage situations. So it's not super sexy, but when I look at this Marlins bullpen, uh, even if you're not projecting him to be the closer of this team uh, as a lefty reliever, um, I think what I worried about when I first looked at him is being kind of redundant with someone like Richard Blyer, but the, the more I look, there are some distinct differences in the stuff, in the style, um, in just the release point that I think you could have both in valuable roles for this bullpen to really tighten it up in middle relief. So not, not the super sexy name, but the way that he performed this past year. And as someone that I think, despite putting up that monster war number that he did, uh, he's more realistic probably than someone like Iglesias.
1: Yeah, he, he is definitely a fun kind of pitcher in the sport, especially, you know, as I mentioned with the failed starter t-shirts and, you know, he reminds me a little bit too, as far as makeup goes, of like a Dylan Floro. You know, he's not really throwing a changeup the way that Floro is, but he's like a two seam slider guy, I think, primarily. And Floro, for most of what he does, you know, his success is predicated on the ability for him to generate a lot of movement on his two seamer and that cutter that he throws. And a guy like Chatham is that way. You know, he missed a lot more bats this year, and you have to give him credit too for pitching a lot of high leverage situations this year with the Cubs when they were competitive before they all fell apart and then quietly over the last couple of years been among the better, if not more under the radar relievers in the sport. I'm a definitely a fan of his. I, I get what you're saying with Blyer with that similarity where maybe there is some trepidation about bringing him in just because, you know, they're both lefties who throw from funky arm angles, but Chapin does have the ability to miss more bats. And I think, depending on how Donnie kind of does his matchups. And again, Don Manningly doesn't always have the best track record with relief pitching. We saw it in LA and a little bit this year. It could work. I mean, you know, relievers are the most volatile position in the sport. So again, you never know, but he would definitely be a lot cheaper than Iglesias. I just think Iglesias is the more sure thing, but if you're really looking to upgrade the team and you don't want to, and say we want to invest in a position player like a shortstop, you know, I know we just extended Rojas or we just want to get a guy like a Castellanos eventually, then maybe you kind of, Chafin is like a fallback option where, you know, you can let Iglesias get paid elsewhere and Chafin kind of just further solidifies a bullpen that, you know, needs some more support. Um, Another name that I had in... Chances are I don't think he's going to go here just because he's so entrenched with the one organization that he's been with since about 2009 as far as his major league career goes. And I like him. I think this year he kind of had a resurgence, although part of me was saying as I was getting ready for this episode tonight, like this may be the last hurrah for him as a great reliever, and it's Kenley Jansen. Mm -hmm. I'm a big Kenley Jansen fan. I think he's among the more under-the-radar relievers. I always kind of think he's like Clayton Kershaw on the bullpen where the, the run prevention was elite, but the value that both of them have amassed relative to when they're pitching, it's still among the upper echelon for their respective positions in this era. Jansen is a sub 20 war reliever, which again, if you can be a great reliever for a prolonged period of time that, you know, you can kind of throw that metric out, but, he kind of got hurt as far as value goes by just pitching in Dodger Stadium, a stadium that is historically pitcher-friendly. and But even with that said, I mean, it's still Major League hitters, and you got to get Major League hitters out, regardless of the fact that it's a sport predicated no failure. Jansen quietly put together 2.3 war this year. He, you know, the strikeouts came back up a little bit. He had 86 Ks and in 69 innings. He had a two twenty two ERA. And even in this, like, air quote decline that he had from 2018 to 20, he still had a 122 ERA plus. He had a 366 fit, 195 strikeouts and 159 innings. You know, if that's decline, then, you know, most people would take that for a bullpen guy, you know, 98% of the time. Some of the rankings kind of, uh, as far as stat cats go, speak to his resurgence. The average exit velocity, guys weren't swearing him up. He was in the 99th percentile in average exit velocity and hard hit rate. 97th percentile in fastball spin, and a lot of that, too, is the cutter. Expected slugging, 97th percentile. 92nd percentile and weighted on base. Expected ERA, barrel percentage. Fastball velocity kind of rebounded a little bit. To be fair, though, it was still in the 43rd percentile after being in the 26th percentile last year. But we even saw it points in the early going of the season he started to incorporate a sinker more because he's right. kind of been like the National League's Mariano Rivera in the sense that he's been a cutter specialist for the majority of his career but the sinker was playing a lot more he was up to 98 at points this year with the sinker um the slider he'd been using a lot more often so and the cutter kind of regained some velocity he was more consistently 93 to 95 than he was 90 to 92 in the previous years and, you know 95 became more commonplace than the 92s that we were seeing the last couple of years with Jansen, but he's, the one concern I may have with him uh, other than the age is the walks. He averaged nearly five walks per nine innings, which again is the highest such mark he's had since his rookie year. But even in that rookie year, he had a sub one ERA in like 20 innings pitch. and he was striking out everybody. So, I mean, he's among the better relievers that I've seen in my lifetime watching baseball, but I I mean, I still think that he's still just a presence, even if, you know, he's not the same pitcher he once was. I mean, a 222 ERA in your 30s, let alone your mid-30s, you know, that speaks to just how good that he's been, and there's still questions surrounding him. I don't know what he would get deal-wise. If he were to leave the Dodgers, I think he would have to take a multi-year deal. I think if he goes back to LA, it's a one-year incentive-laden deal. But, you know, what's your take on a guy like, you know, Kenley? Do you think he would make a lot of sense in Miami or do you think that you know he's so entrenched with that franchise in LA that they'll find a way to bring him back somehow
0: he's been such a victim of the Dodgers like constant success where he's always in the postseason he's always pitching important moments and there have been at least one of those playoff runs where I think when they made it to October that Dave Roberts didn't have a whole lot of faith in him like he wasn't closing games in one or two particular playoff runs and that sticks with people uh, you kind of undersold it the career that he's having is incredible it is like it's not that far away from being in hall of fame consideration from how good he is and how important situations that that he's pitching in it, it really has been an awesome career and everybody has to have, make this sort of transition when you're, the pure velo starts to slip how exactly you're going to counteract that and yeah i mean he, he did a pretty interesting job of it you, you point out the walks i mean that's that's the one thing that uh, ultimately there's there's a certain threshold where uh, that just becomes a big hindrance like if he walks as many as he did this past season um, you play out that that same scenario again and he probably allows more runs and he's not quite as as uh, as trustworthy as he was this year um, but I, I, it is hard to see him like going to another uniform after being with the Dodgers all this way and being so good with them all this way, but it's, I mean, it's fair to bring him up just because the Dodgers have, we're going to mention it, at least one of them. I think later in this episode, they have a yeah. gajillion free agents. They have so many like players that have been making a lot of money that are still good enough to continue making a lot of money on their next deals. So they're not going to be able to keep all of them. They're going to have to make some choices. There are going to be some of these players that are on the market and uh, that the Marlins could realistically pry away by making a fair offer and, he might be one of them he's i mean he's a fair one um to bring up i i would not be i'd be surprised though if he ends up with a different team but it's it's important to bring him up and i guess that that does it for the relievers we could transition to the bats i think that's what a lot of people yeah. are eager to talk about anyway
1: sure yeah if you want to go first go ahead i had a few names but i want to hear what you some some guys that you may have. I'm sure there'll be some more crossover as well.
0: I'll, I'll start with someone that I've brought up. Um, I've, I've been bringing this guy up since like May before he's finally a free agent. Eduardo Escobar, who started this year with the Diamondbacks, uh, got traded to the Brewers midway through the year. As he's one of these guys. Uh, it continues a theme that I've mentioned on, on the previous episodes that I really think it's important for the Marlins to get a, a bat first, veteran infielder that can play at least third base and second base, or even shortstop would be a plus. And that's probably not Escobar, but he plays those other two spots where he's versatile and he just rakes and he rakes in important situations. He is, I I pulled it up, um, runs batted in. It's, it's, we, we know how many, uh, how much noise there is in this stat, but Mm -hmm. if you go back to 2019 top third baseman by RBI totals, it's Rafael Devers, Nolan Arenado, Manny Machado, Jose Ramirez, super duper stars, all of them. And then number five is Escobar in in RVIs by a third baseman. He's been pretty durable with a small exception during that time. And he just piles up extra base hits. He really he um a surprising number of triples. That's what sticks out for, for me when I looked at his stats, too, is how many triples he has for a guy that's not especially fast and who's not really that young anymore. He's going to his age. 33 season he's he's uh, he's surprisingly he's better than you think he's been under the radar because of just some of the teams that he's been on in his career um, with the twins and then with the Dimebacks and but he was pretty important to the Brewers down the stretch like he was one of the most impactful bats when the rest of their offense <coughs> was drying up you know, for a lot of his career he's just been pretty considerably above league average in terms of WRC plus and he also has like a pretty, it kind of comes and goes his contact skills where he's, he's had a couple years where he's throughout his career, he's been above league average in avoiding strikeouts, but this past year it spiked up uh, a little bit. Um, uh, yeah. I'll be curious to see what kind of deal he gets. I remember um, three years ago when he was going to be a free agent at the last minute, he took like a three year $21 million extension from the D backs. I have to imagine that the, the, the length of the deal is down this time. I would think he's attainable for a two-year deal, um, and this just goes back to the fact that I have my questions about Brian Anderson's readiness coming off shoulder surgery. I got—I um, don't want to just hand an everyday job to Jazz Chisholm. Um, if if this team has those super high expectations, they got to make sure that he's cleaned up his defense and that he's healthy for the start of the year. I, I love him as someone who is versatile and who has now had an opportunity to be be on a couple of contending teams who, who just hits as simple as that. And he is someone that this is not an anomaly. You know, he's had several other seasons of his career, 2.6 war 3.3 war um, in the past that I I like him. I I just, I, I wanted them to trade for Escobar during the season when everybody was going down with injuries for the Marlins early in the year uh, they didn't do that, but he's going to be on the, the open market now, and I just think he's he's, he's a high-floor player. He definitely makes them better. I'd much rather see him than Joe Panic. I'd much rather see him than Isan Diaz. It's, it's that type of role, but somebody that can really make an impact in that role.
1: Yeah, so Eli, I don't own it or have any markings on my body as far as piercings or tattoos go, but if there's a baseball stat that I would get tattooed on me, it is on base percentage. And I'll preface it by saying this. I'm a big Eduardo Escobar fan. The one concern I have with him is, I mean, I like the contact skills. I believe he's only had one season in his entire career where he struck out more than 100 times. He is a career 309 OBP guy. And, again, I don't expect everyone to have a 400 on base. But it's he's about a league average hitter for the majority of his career, although last year he was slightly above league average. And he did post a 342 OBP in his short stint with the brewers which is encouraging yeah The one thing is that scares me about having a guy like that and i don't think he would play i mean he'd play 120 130 games but i wouldn't you know lock him into one position every day just because i think that the good you know he would depreciate a little bit in value just because he doesn't get on base the way that you know you kind of want Guys in the Marlins, too. And the one issue I think that really plagued us, other than, you know, not being able to really hit incredibly with men on, and the fact that we strained so many runners, is the fact that Eduardo Escobar is a kind of low OVP guy. But like you said, his ceiling is relatively high, not like MVP level high, but when he's good, he's an excellent complementary piece on a team. I mean, you know, if the Marlins gave him, say, a two year deal and he puts a 2018 esque season together where he's got a 824 OPS. We'll take that every day for 7 to $12 million, $10 million a year. You know, I think a contract on the upper end that he'd get is maybe what a guy like Avicel Garcia got from Milwaukee. His former teammate was about two for 20, I believe. And Avicel Garcia, while well, he struggled a little bit last year, and he's actually a guy I have on my list, we don't really have to spend too much time on him, Mini Miggy as he is. He put up a pretty good year last year, where he played good defense in right field. He hit for power, you know, nearly a 500 slug. Escobar improved as far as his plate discipline goes a little bit with Milwaukee, but I see him kind of Escobar kind of getting a deal in the market of what a guy like Garcia got. And one of the the pluses too is the fact that Escobar did at points. I believe they started games for them at first base in the postseason, so. He added another position to his toolkit as far as where he can play and move around. He's a versatile player, I and mean, if you're in a league average offensive player with the ability to play every position in the infield, you're going to have some form of value to another team. I think I'd, on a good team, he's a complementary piece. For a team like the Marlins, he'll probably get a lot more playing time than you'd ideally want for him, but it, you know, I think you lose some of what makes him so great. If he plays a little bit too much. But at the end of the day, you know, if the Marlins bring him on, I would kind of hope it's after they maybe bring on some bigger names on the position player front, because I think yeah. in that context, he's a great complement to like what could be an improved lineup. Should we sign a Nick Castellanos or some of these other guys that we'll touch on in, you know, now and in future episodes that just, you know, he, definitely help. He he, he
0: gives me some Adam Duvall vibes where I I know the overall stats. Uh, you focus on the OBP. I I know you, and uh, I get that too, but with Duvall, I mean, the Marlins are, they really did benefit from him. He was, Oh, he was in the similar sense. He was really overstretched in his role. Like they were really relying on him every day, especially when a couple of the outfield injuries piled up and, and that's not what you want. But I think just, there are some, a lot of intangibles that I like about him, a lot of situational stuff that you're, yeah, you're right. I mean, we're going to touch on some uh, more exciting names that are going to be a little pricier. And uh, if he's the big prize of the off season, people will naturally be disappointed.
1: Yeah. still,
0: Yeah. I just, I see a potential fit.
1: No, I would, again, and like I said, I think when I, when you mentioned him, I thought of the 2019 nationals who kind of, I mean, they had Juan Soto and they had the starting pitching tandem with Strasburg and, Corbin and Scherzer, but they also won with complimentary guys, Starley Castro, Jan Gomes, uh, Ryan Zimmerman at that point wasn't an everyday player. You know, or he was, but he kind of just his role further diminished as, you know, the the season, the following seasons ensued. But they won with complimentary pieces, and I think that would be what, again, like I said, is what would make Escobar even more attractive is if he's a nice complement to an improved lineup should we make the moves and should you know some guys in our farm system continue to improve and you know eventually see success at the big league level. I touched briefly on Avi Garcia. Um you know I thought you know that first year Milwaukee wasn't great but this year you know in A20 OPS, 120 OPS plus the defense they kind of fixed if we if you look at him early in his career he was a lot bigger especially like in Detroit and Chicago, they kind of people kind of compared him to like Miguel Cabrera as far as the face and the the swing. But, you know, in Tampa, he was, a, he was a great everyday player and this year in Milwaukee, he played great defense in the corner outfield spots. He slugged 490, he hit 29 home runs. A guy who, you know, if you need some security in the outfield, especially in like right field, because you don't know where Gary Cooper's going to play if there's no universal DH, not a bad option to have I w- I'm kind of so anxious to just mention this guy because again I you know obviously I follow you on Twitter and most people on Twitter who follow fish stripes see that the trade for Jose Ramirez trade is train is in full swing everybody wants him to go obviously you're not gonna be in this episode because he was a seven war player essentially in 2021 and he's been up close to that for the last couple of years. The security blanket, if we don't acquire him, and again, the chances of this happening are probably sub five percent. And he is a little bit more expensive. But he's a he's another third baseman. The Marlins don't know what they're gonna get moving forward out of Brian Anderson because injuries have just kind of become he's almost like our Grady Sarris more light where he has tools, but he's just never on the field enough to fully display them. And again, I'll probably be called crazy for this by everybody who listens and maybe by you, but listen, I don't care about the science stealing scandal anymore. I would not be opposed should the team call the Astros after the World Series. They are missing. They're going to be losing Correa. There's no chance that he resigns. Alex Bregman playing third base for the Marlins every day is not something I'd be opposed to. I think you have three years left before he's set to hit free agency. So, Should we pick up a bulk of the contract? I don't think he'll be as expensive. He's set to make $13 million next year, and then it jumps up in 23 and 24 to $30.5 million per season. Um, Compare the last two years after 2019, where I believe he finished second in the MVP voting to Mike Trout. He's been an above-average player, and actually it's funny. The best comp that I can find for him, 2020 to 2021, and for those who aren't aware, he's slashed 261, 353, 431 in that time, 785, 784 OPS. Ryan Anderson, 2019 to 2020, 260, 343, 467. 114 OPS plus for both in that time. I think Bregman's upside is obviously a lot higher. Anderson may have a slight edge on defense. And in those, in their respective two-year spends, Anderson was the better player by value accrued. But we also have to remember that Bregman had a quad injury this year. He only played in 91 games. He put up 2.1 baseball reference board this year, but he's, you know, he's consistently a guy who puts the ball in play. He doesn't swing and miss. He's in the 97th percentile whiff rate. He, even in an off year, which would be a pretty good year for most third baseman around the sport, 77th percentile walk rate, 95th percentile in K rate. He doesn't hit the ball as hard as most guys, but and maybe you could say he's getting lucky. I believe he's below league average and average exit velocity. But the results have kind of shown themselves for a while. I think he's an excellent player. Maybe for $30 million, you don't love him so much because you're expecting four to five wins, you know, bare minimum for a guy like that if you're paying him that kind of money. But I still think, like, Miami needs a true blue star in the lineup every day, and I think Alex Bregman is that. I also like the fact that, like, he, while he may not be the defensive player, stalwart that Anderson is at third has the ability to play shortstop. He's played some second base and the metrics have kind of become a little bit kinder to him. He's the last couple of years, he's graded slightly above average at third base. And I think he's a lot ranger than people give him credit for. Again, I'll just end it by saying I'm a big fan of Bregman, regardless of what kind of went down in 2017 and maybe in the years that followed. I, I don't know. I, I mean, the Marlins need a star and if they're not going to sign somebody and we don't, you know, shell out the necessary prospects to acquire a Jose Ramirez. Alex Bregman has to be somebody circled on that board in the offseason.
0: You don't need to sell me on Bregman as a player of, uh, I just on his availability, I don't see any scenario where they end up trading him right now. And as you said with the contract, that was my first time actually looking at the, that huge jump in his contract. As you said, 13, 13, 13 annual salaries. these, three-year trips, and then it jumps to 30, from 13 to 30 and a half. I I don't know if there are very many deals in Major League history that do that. So that's – yeah, I can't – I don't think the Marlins under any circumstance are going to be able to accommodate a a $30 million-a-year guy, especially, as as you said, that is now a couple years removed from being capital A Alex Bregman being the guy Mm -hmm. that was – seem to be emerging as their very best player. And now, and now somebody that's it, that's in a weird spot. I like the thinking outside the box. Um, I, I would just wonder exactly what it would take for the Astros to shop him. And it'd be a very unique deal, uh, to bring him over, uh, especially given that, that money complication that's uh, going on there. Hmm. Maybe I'll, I'll stick with, a, another trade candidate. Um, Which one should I go to? I have a couple here. I'll touch on Steven Duggar, who with the Giants posted a (coughs) 2.1 war this year, who did not have much of a major league track record uh, at all prior to this year. But like so many guys on the Giants, he reached a new level. Whatever magic that they're doing with uh, their training and their hitting instruction, it, it kind of graced everybody, including him. And he had this streak that I guess you would compare to like the Bryn Sanity stretch, because as someone that just didn't have much of a major league track record, all of a sudden through a lot of May and early June, he had the stretch where he was OPSing like 1100 for a three to four week stretch. And he ended up spending a lot of time this past year in the minors. And that's the reason why um, it stuck out to me that he didn't get a whole lot of just a half season's worth of major league playing time. And yet he put up to war he is for people that don't know he is a center fielder he's a pretty genuine uh center fielder and at least this year uh graded out fairly well uh defensively in in that regard who is he's about to turn 28 years old he still has four years of club control beyond this year and w- with the giants they have a couple of their key position players coming up for free agency that we expect to come back and i don't think they're going to be able to like hold on to all these guys heading into next year, there's going to inevitably be some sort of trades um, to, to clear space on on their roster. He's a guy who I believe is going to be out of minor league options next year, despite spending most of this year in the minors. So they either have to believe in, in him uh, wholeheartedly, or he's the guy that I would expect to be on the trade market Uh, with all those years of control, earning that league minimum next year before he's finally arbitration eligible, And he just has a little bit more of a track record than, than some of the other young controllable center fielders that people have brought up as like potential Marlins targets. I think the fact that he at least has close to a hundred games this year where he's done a good job. And the particular split that I dug up on him that I liked was um, that the way that the giants used their hitters this year and platooned everybody, they had everybody uh, with few exceptions, like, when on days they weren't starting, a whole lot of pinch-hitting appearances. And you look at Duggar's splits, and so overall, he put up a pretty pedestrian line, uh, slashing 257, 330, 437, only a few percentage points above the league average in terms of WRC+. plus. But you split it between games when he was starting and coming off the bench. Um, when When he was coming off the bench, he was like an automatic out. When he was in their starting lineup, let me see if i have that here he was opsing 819 so you get a number that is goes from solid to great for an up the middle player for a guy that's a genuine center fielder he for all his power when he was starting uh, for, but they really miscast him in this kind of like hybrid role um just to that's kind of how the giants have it set up uh with the marlins you know they're more traditional with the kind of roles that they have um, if all else falls through, like in their search for uh, a, a center fielder, maybe they end up uh, spending a lot of their money on a corner guy. I, I think this is someone that I certainly like more up the middle than some of their other internal options. And just given like all the bodies that they have on their roster, given that he's out of options and some of the real questions about him, I don't think they'd have to give up much to acquire him. It'd be a pretty small trade. It'd be pretty low risk for someone that I think could – has another gear that he could find as an actual everyday player.
1: Yeah, maybe like a fringe big league reliever that maybe saw some time on a roster and another low level prospect just because of the amount of control. I mean 2021 was the first year where he wasn't above average offensive player. You know, the OP the on base was solid for a guy who played didn't play every day. But the defense is probably the one thing that sticks out to me the most. Obviously Marlon Spark will it won't suppress offense the way that San Francisco does, but you know, to be a plus defender in center field in a ballpark like that, where you can kind of just leave Jesus Sanchez and Brian De La Cruz in the corners, should you not sign a big name corner outfielder in free agency, I think you know, makes sense. It the question is, are there sophomore slumps for a guy like De La Cruz in the waiting? Uh, is a guy like Sanchez set to regress despite an encouraging showing in 2021 after 2020, where he really didn't impress that much? And then, if the worst-case scenario is that, and then Duggar coincidentally doesn't hit along with them, then you're looking at another outfield where you're kind of scratching your head, wondering where is my offense on a consistent basis? Yeah. I, you know, I get it. definitely a nice option where you don't want to spend a lot of money, but if you want to spend a little bit of money on an outfielder who I think better profiles as a corner guy because the defensive metrics don't love him. Although, I do have my concerns about him. I think you know we're getting in the we're getting to the point as far as value goes in this series where you're getting quality big leaguers, but you're not getting the guys at their respective positions, wherever they may play. Mark Hanna is a guy that I've always liked. A Rule Five guy. With Oakland, he's played now seven or eight seasons in the big leagues. And he's played everywhere, first base, third base at times, every outfield position. He's been a pinch hitter for them. A couple of years ago, it shouldn't be slept on. He had a 393 on base percentage. Mark is is kind of become a very good everyday player. And Oakland's not the easiest place to hit. It's a dilapidated stadium that's had Plenty of problems. The only concern I may have for Canna over the last couple of years is his slug is below 400. I believe he's slugging like 393, if I'm not mistaken. Or yeah, 393 slug in 200 games since 2020. That being said, he has a 366 on base percentage in that span. That works when even if you're not slugging, you know, 500. It's a 115 OPS plus. You'll take that from a guy. Who you don't even need to pay to play every day. I don't know who give him two three years. I mean, he still put up two and a half WAR, even despite a so you know he had minus eleven defensive runs saved, so he wasn't the best defender in the outfield. Seventy seven walks this year, though he put up a three fifty eight OBP. Like the guy is getting on base, and you know not to quote Moneyball too much, but that is something that's important. The totality of his 2019 to 2021, though, and 2019 is definitely an outlier in comparison to these last two years, he's 27% above league average since the start of 2019. He's got a 377 on base percentage. He's walked in 13% of his plate appearances since then. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I don't think it'll take a lot to get him, but the one thing I think that's plagued this Marlins' lineup And I think guys can learn from watching a hitter who is a lot more selective, you know, guys like a Jazz Chisholm and such can learn that, hey, like we can get to starters more if we kind of work them a little bit and force them to throw a lot of pitches. And Canada takes his fair share of walks. So, you know, a guy like Jazz Chisholm, like I said, could learn from him, even a guy like De La Cruz who he hit, but he wasn't walking a lot. At the outset of his career is definitely a lot more of a free swinger, but Canna exudes a degree of patience that I think has been largely absent in the Marlins lineup for a while.
0: Yeah, it's not just about the walks, it's also the hit by pitches. He had 27 hit by pitches last year. He had 10 in the shortened season the year before. He had 18 the year before that, even though he didn't play every single day the entire year. So without even looking it up, he is he's right up there with like the hit-by-pitch leaders over the past few years. Combines and when you do it year after year, we saw with Derek Dietrich, like it's it's a skill. It is something that is kind of repeatable, and that seems to be part of his his approach at the plate. At least that's something that that ages well. I'll put it that way. That's that probably ages better than any other skill. If that if you crowd the plate and you get hit by a lot of pitches, Anthony Rizzo, that that, that's going to continue. Anthony Rizzo is the guy that we I think we brought him up on the last episode. They are neck and neck between those guys, and. I love I like the versatility that he does have. With he's played a bunch at all those outfield spots. He's played first base. Uh, yeah, the defense is a pretty big question. That's something I'll have to dive into because by DRS, you know, he's been in the negative almost every year of his career. Um, but that's not. I'd have to dive closer to look as to whether we think he could actually hold up defensively in the outfield now, going to what will be his age 33 season. He's been a popular name that's been brought up um, around the Marlins by other readers of ours and listeners. And, and I understand why, because he kind of fits that nice uh, spot where he, he addresses a clear area of need that they have in patience, not just like getting on base, but also working really deep counts time after time. And the fact that we just think he'll be affordable. Um, yeah, a fun fact is that he's represented by CAA, which is the same agency that basically half the Marlins roster uses. Brian Anderson, Sandy Alcantara, uh, a lot of their young prospects uh, coming up as well. Uh, Adam Duvall used CAA as well. So there's a lot of familiarity there that I think would be able to get them. I, I imagine a certain one-year deal or one year with a big enough club option stuck to the end of it that it seems super realistic. So that's another one where we had an overlap for sure. I did pick okay. it out, And nice. uh, yeah, I thought that would make a lot of sense. Uh, also on the free agent front, really there's not a whole lot that the free agent market has to offer at catcher, but we do have that one guy, Jan Gomes, who has been around a long time. Um, uh, what well, was most recently with Oakland. So I guess they were teammates pretty briefly uh, Canna and Gomes in-, in Oakland, but I mean, people he, Marlins fans will remember him more with the nationals for a few years, including their world series title and with Cleveland before that. So he is heading into his age 34 season and he has just pretty consistently relative to other catchers. Like you have to really change the whole calculation. When you talk about catchers that offensively for a catcher through most of his career, he's been solid. He's been somewhere close to league average this past year, almost exactly at league average, uh, offensively. And it's, it's a combination. It's more to do with power than it is to do with on base skills. Um, he, he's not a super sexy option, uh, He's never caught more. He's never played more. Oh, I should take that back in one year early in his career where he was that true primary catcher in Cleveland, but that's way back in 2014. Like at this stage of his career, he is essentially someone that you imagine kind of splitting catching duties down the middle. He's not even like a full fledged everyday type of guy. There's just not that many of them in baseball right now. And he is the kind of the closest thing to that. That will be for sure available in free agency. And I mean, you always get scared about catch catchers in this age range because it could fall off really suddenly. But the fact that he just gives you a pretty high floor offensively, just relative to other Marlins catchers, uh, Marlins catchers, they were bad at everything this past year. Absolutely everything. But um, especially with offense, that's the one pretty clear thing that uh, there's room for improvement. And to someone that's just been around a while and that has worked with like such a wide variety of elite pitchers, I think you would, more so than the average catcher, you would have some faith in his ability to continue working well with the young studs that are emerging with the Marlins that, at least on that side of the ball, he, he could call a good game by a defensive run saved for most of his career. He's rated out really positively uh, in terms of throwing out base runners. That's kind of been up or down for his career. I mean, overall, kind of right around the league average for his career in terms of deterring base dealers and all that. It's It's not... Not a sexy name, but we just know that the Marlins have to do something with catcher because right now, uh, all, presumably, all the guys that they're bringing back have essentially no major league experience or like the smallest of samples. That and they need to do something on that regard, and we've mentioned already some trade candidates for them behind the plate. If if nothing else, uh, this guy is going to be on the market, and I uh, someone that at this stage of his career is not going to like require that really long deal just a no-brainer upgrade for them, even if it doesn't change the direction of the franchise or anything.
1: And then he does also have a slight connection with the organization too. I mean, J.P. and CBO, who briefly played with the Blue Jays as Gomes, I believe Gomes came up with Toronto. I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure. Yeah. Yeah. You're right about that. But you know, a, a catcher talking to another catcher, guys that can kind of feed off each other. Aaron Sibia, you know, being there a lot during the season on site, he obviously did pre and post game. He was a guy who was around the team a lot. And I think is a very observant guy when it comes to just like the, the aspects of catching and a lot that it entails. I think that could be like a good guy that he could even go to, not that he's in necessarily an advisory role, but you know, somebody that you can have casual conversation with about your position and, you know, Aaron Sibia didn't have the sexiest big league career, but, you know, he played in the major leagues, so he's got to know something. I mean, they're pretty close in age. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a bad fit. You, any above average offense you get out of a catcher is a plus. And he, you know, what's great about Gomes is he kind of has a track record of being around successful teams. You know, he was with the Nationals in 2019. He was with Oakland. He's with Cleveland when they kind of ascended again to relevancy. Yeah. And you know, it was with Toronto before they further turned it around, too. So he's always kind of been on pretty good teams for the most part during his career. I like him. To uh, right, yeah. Um, if you want to talk about a guy, I think that'll command a lot more money, though. And I'm kind of glad we got a chance to play I was going to mention it at some point because it's very this week, but I mentioned it on Twitter. If you follow me on Twitter, that i probably had three to five tweets now at this point where I've champion Kim Ang to open up the checkbook and say, Chris Taylor, please, you know, I really want you over here. I
0: came prepared with the photo of him. I, I, I'm excited
1: and I love you for that. Yeah. But, you know, we talked previously about Eduardo Escobar, a guy who at times has been an above average hitter. But then you have Chris Taylor, who not only is an above average hitter, but has a consistent track record of hitting in the postseason. And he plays all over the field, Eli. This year, seven games started at six different positions: right field, center field, second base, third base, shortstop, left field. And I and he was about average to slightly above average at if not most of them, you know, all of them. I believe there were some spots where he was like slightly below average, but again, he's not playing there on an everyday basis, so it's okay. He. You know, when Ben Zobers was a free agent after he won the World Series with Kansas City in 2015, the general consensus surrounding him as utility players, you know, further gained relevancy in the free agent market as being guys who you think could covet uh, expensive, comfortable multi year deals is that, hey, these guys like could pretty much fit any team because it does not hurt to have a guy that can be an above average offensive player. Oh, and oh, yeah. The other thing is he can move all around the field and do everything you need him to do. Surprisingly, he's never played first base, so but I don't really think that would be an issue. We have Lou and Diaz, so I think we're covered there. But Chris Taylor, you know, a 110 OPS plus, and that might not seem like a lot, but when you're playing in Dodger Stadium and you're playing in the National League West where some of the other ballparks are playing in San Francisco and, you know, ballpark Arizona, which is another – it's a good hitter sport, Colorado – to be that, and it, you know, San Diego, another ballpark where it's not necessarily easy to hit. To even be remotely above league average, but granted, he's done it now four years where he's getting on base at a 340 plus clip. Last year, I believe he had a 380 on base percentage. So he showed us what he could do even more with the for, with further play discipline. He had a 344 OBP this year, 2.7 war this year. I mean them as far as what I think he gets, it's for it's a zobris like contract, but I would not be surprised if he's, you know, somebody offers him 60, 70 million dollars to play for them all over the field. Again, I think he fills any team's needs. We have John Birdie, and John Birdie was a pleasant surprise in 2020 in that shortened season with the way that he was able to get on base. But you want sustained performance. And I think Chris Taylor provides that with the knack for being able to move all over the field, a la Kike Hernandez, Tony Phillips with the offense thrown in there. And, I mean, yeah, if the Marlins don't sign a big-name shortstop, if they – I mean, which, you know, they don't really have incentive to now given that Rojas is locked up for the next two years. But if, you know, Carlos Correa doesn't get a call from the Marlins and we don't throw a a blank check at him or say a Trevor Story or Seager, Chris Taylor has to be – if not – after someone that you pursue early in this offseason because just the performance alone with the positional versatility is so valuable. It just keeping guys fresh. I think he's one of the main reasons why 2017 onward, even though they had already won four straight divisions, why the Dodgers continued to succeed and kind of took that next step to, you know, three world series appearances in the last four years. He was a massive part of that. I mean, he hit three home runs in game five of the, the championship series, he hit a home run to off of Alex Reyes, who had a good, pretty good year for the Cardinals to win the wild card game. He believe he won a co NLCS MVP in twenty eighteen. So the the, the track record of success is there, and I think it's about time he gets paid. And I really want the Marlins to be the team that pay him. I think again he fits anywhere, but please come to Miami, right? That's my last plea yeah. for now. He he's he's
0: one of the poster children of the the like practice of elevating the ball and keeping it off the grounds for his entire career. He has hit into 27 double plays Hmm. for someone that has played in parts of eight seasons. That's, that's the kind of number that Albert pools puts up in like a single year back in his day that like Miguel Cabrera, for as much as we love Miguel Cabrera, that's kind of a number that he's hit in single individual seasons. You look at the launch angle that he puts on the ball, like kind of just with one exception, really, the shortened season in 2020 was a little bit higher than usual in terms of, uh, like, straying away from that consistency. But almost every other season of his career, he gets the ball in the air enough, and he really he squares it up consistently enough in such a way that I think that that travels that travels anywhere, including to Lone Depot Park. That he is that very ultra rare super utility player that also hits for solid extra base power that he's going to hit over the fence. He's also going to hit it into the gaps, and he has the speed to take advantage of that, both on balls and play, and just in terms of stealing bases as well at a really efficient clip. He is, you plug him into any team, and he makes that team better. Uh, this past year was the very first time that he was an all star, which surprised me because he's been flirting at like the same level for this past half decade now with the Dodgers. His postseason performance, that's just like the, the cherry on top. You know, he was the. NLCS MVP back in 2017. He was, it would have been a strong contender for that exact same honor this year. If the Dodgers had somehow won the series, he was one of the few guys that was keeping them in the series. And that was carrying their offense at a time when Corey Seager wasn't quite at that level. When Justin Turner was hurt, when some of these other household names that have gotten that who have are about to get their big contractor, or have already gotten it. Um, they, they weren't quite on that same level, and he's been able to, to do that. 2-2,
1: Taylor with a fly ball to deep left center field. Chris Taylor has hit his third home run of the night and becomes the 11th different player in baseball history with three home runs in a postseason game. Chris Taylor.
0: One of the few drawbacks with him is that He does strike out quite a lot, uh, and especially like this year in particular, down the stretch of this year, as I said, he was an all-star for his first half, and then towards the end of the year, they were a little worried about him because he went into a really deep slump for a lot of September when he just couldn't put his bat on the ball. There will be some streakiness with him that's just nitpicking. I mean, there are so many guys already on this Marlins roster who are are streaky as well that we kind of have penciled in to be either everyday players or, or close to that. It kind of just depends, you know, what exactly he's looking for in free agency. Aside from the biggest contract, that's going to be the main objective for him. But in terms of whether he wants to continue being like this super utility guy or whether there's a particular position that he feels most comfortable at, at least for, you know, this past year, played a lot of center field and a lot of second base. And we know that center field in particular, that's where one of the voids are with this team, as long as he's willing to play it. And then, I mean, the question becomes exactly what to do with him by the end of the contract, assuming it is perhaps a four year deal. um, he, He probably won't be an everyday center fielder four years from now. This is kind of the same conversation we had with like Starling Marte, where he was someone that was in the market going to be in line for a similar contract himself uh, but uh, while the Marlins were in extension talks with him as a, as a pending free agent. Um, But with, with Taylor, just because he has so much experience on the infield as well, you, you feel like you'll get some value out of every single year of the deal. That's, that's kind of what, even though it's probably more on an annual basis than you're comfortable with. I, I like the, I feel like he will age pretty gracefully because of this approach that he has at the plate and because of like all the area, all the positions where he could spot him in just based on the team's needs.
1: Yeah. Listen, this may be a bit of like a hot take, but the Dodgers are a team that are even without, you know, with a lot of the guys that they lose, you have to realize they're still going into next year with another year. Justin Turner, Mookie Betts is there for a long time. Uh, Cody Bellinger is not going to put a W W put up a WRC plus a 48 again. I just think what the adjustments he made in the postseason, you saw that he's going to turn a corner. He's working on a swing. Things are going to be a lot more fruitful for him. But for a team that's littered with the number of kind of great to above average big league players that the Dodgers have, Chris Taylor, to me, was the most important position player on that roster beyond Kike Hernandez during these last four or so years. And he spent five seasons with them, four years, five seasons because of what we've kind of constantly beaten into the listener right now and what baseball fans have seen and what LA fans didn't even, I wouldn't even say took for granted because positional versatility is a thing that the Dodgers kind of preach. Because if you look at everybody on that roster, Bellinger could play every outfield spot. Turner played a lot of shortstop when he first came over to the Dodgers, played some second base, some first base. Uh, I mean, Gavin Lux played center field for them in the playoffs. He's, a good defender at short and second. He played some third base for them. Matt Beatty, who is an average to slightly above average hitter, everywhere in the outfield except center field. Played first and third. It, but Chris Taylor, just the consistent offensive performance and the way that they can rest guys and move guys around, and you know his uh, his willingness to just go wherever Dave Roberts is needed him there while being in LA is what has kind of made him so important. And again, I know I said, everybody can kind of do that. I mean, Mookie Betts can play second base if they need him to too, right? And he can play center field and he can play shorts and he can play right field as good as anybody. But Taylor just consistently performing as an above average offensive player and not playing one or two positions it's six positions and being serviceable to above average all of them and hitting the way that he does. Again, that's why I think he's so valuable. I'm not, you know, saying like Chris Taylor needs to have a plaque at Cooperstown. I don't think he'll ever accrue the value to merit that, but I'm, but just the importance to him cannot be overstated to that, or to the, the importance for him to the Dodgers just cannot be overstated. So, you know, anybody who gets him is going to be getting, you know, they're going to be getting such an important part to a roster. I think that just lengthens your roster so much because he's like a band-aid for everybody else just can just keep him fresh and help heal when guys are tired or you know somebody's injured. Just he's a plug and play guy. You know, he's like put me in coach, you know, to quote the John Fogerty song, I'm ready to play. And he's yeah. And yeah, just, I just I I love him so much. I just I love his, his yeah. yeah
0: one other factor to consider is that the Dodgers will be extending a qualifying offer to him that he'll reject, which would attract him to uh attach him to draft pick compensation. The Marlins would have to give up their third overall pick this upcoming draft. So that'll actually be in the second round of the draft, like in the fifties number. That's that's something that is at least according to reports, they've kind of totally ruled out any qualifying offer players and since this rebuild started because they like their they believe so much in the draft and their ability to get good value from the draft that they are unwilling to, to budge on that in order to address immediate major league needs, they'd have to, they have to evolve on that stance. And I think a lot of people expect them to, because they understand like, this is finally the, the stage of the rebuild where you need to take the major league competition seriously. And in order to do that, you'll, you'll have to make those kind of like marginal sacrifices in your future in order to improve right away. Uh, so I'm not sure that would scare them away. What ultimately would scare them away, I think, is if another team comes in with like a five-year offer. Or you brought up DJ Lemayhu earlier in in the pod. Is it? I mean, is it that crazy to think that he could get DJ Lemayhu money? I think probably just because he's not he hasn't reached that level of offensive amazingness that that LeMahieu did the, the previous couple of years. You just never know uh, heading into them. All it takes is one crazy team to like totally screw up the market for everybody else.
1: Yeah. I mean, he, LeMahieu's ceiling was like two very good years with the Yankees, but, and one of them was, you know, a cut in thirds in 2020, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, he's not getting a hundred million dollars. I don't see him being a 90, hundred million dollar player, but you know, I could put my head to the pillow. Okay. Knowing he, the Marlins gave him say four for, 70 68 if you yeah. want to give him you know say 16 and dollars over four years but you know before i get on one knee and ask chris taylor to marry me <laughs> we'll move on to another player who i don't you know maybe the fit isn't perfect and this is going to be the last guy that i have um i've mentioned him before i wrote a piece on fish stripes i believe back in july or about why i thought he would make sense uh Another guy who's kind of had a slight renaissance with San Francisco's analytics department, I think embracing launch angle more because the strikeouts are up a bit, but you can offset it with his ability to just get on base at a crazy, crazy rate. Brandon belt. I mean, he hit only, you know, he played 97 games in 2021. He still hit a career high 29 home runs. He had never hit more than 18 home runs. And any previous season with San Francisco. And again, some of that may be the ballpark, his ability to kind of just get on base at an elite rate. But, you know, he has a, he, a 378 on base percentage this year, a 597 slugging percentage, I believe, a 160 OPS plus since the start of 2020. And it's about a full season slate of games. I mean, the numbers kind of speak for themselves. He's probably been among the, three to four best offensive first baseman in the sport, 285, 393, 595, 38 home runs, 89 driven in. He missed some time with a thumb injury. He didn't play in the division series. But, and, you know, you could argue that if he's there, the Giants maybe upset the Dodgers and win that series. Sure. But Brandon Belt, I mean, the defense too has always been a good, has been a thing that people don't, ever give him enough credit for. He's a good defensive first baseman. If I'm not mistaken, he, I believe he may have a gold glove in his trophy case somewhere. I could be wrong on that one, but I
0: I don't see one. He was probably a finalist at some point. He
1: may have been, but he's just steady. I mean, and the last couple of years are kind of like seeing him take his game to another level. I think too, like you talked about with Duggar, you take him out of San Francisco and maybe you unlock a little bit more in the hit tool just because he's not playing in as spacious an outfield as San Francisco as far as where he's hitting. I mean, Brandon Brandon Belt would be a dream. You're not going to play him in right field anymore. I think the days of him getting the occasional corner outfield start have gone by as he approaches his mid-30s. But I think the hit tool has just gotten to the point where – you can't not at least consider him, even if Lewin Diaz is there, even if you kind of have a guy like Garrett Cooper and you have a guy like Aguiar still there. I just think the offense is so elite at this point, and you could say elite just because it's... I mean, a 160 OPS plus, Like that's... you know That can win you an MVP if you're doing that over the course of a full season, and he's kind of been that guy for like a year now as far as the slate of games is concerned. I think you know, internally, they'll probably just stay with Lewin because San Francisco will probably give him a qualifying offer, and you talked about it previously with Taylor. They may not want to give up, you know, compensation picks. But, I mean, it's alluring to see a guy who can put up a, you know, near 400 OBP at first base and give you serviceable defense. I think you'd sacrifice Lewin's gold glove defense for more offense in the way it belt. I mean, offense is where, you know, the Marlins kind of, we're most starved for as far as, you know, any need is concerned, but I don't know. Brandon belt wouldn't be a bad option at first base.
0: And very much in, in my mind, in that Kenley Jansen bucket, where it's just hard to envision him being with another team yet. He's he's going to be a free agent. He, you know, the other teams will, it seems have a chance to negotiate with him, So he can't totally uh, rule it out. I was, I didn't actually realize exactly how incredible uh, the, both the on-base and the power was this past year. I thought it was uh, only the power, because that that stat is always that about his home runs. I had that kind of memorized, where even though he was he was somebody that has been, I, I would think pretty divisive among the Giants community, because he's at a traditional power position, and through a combination of his skill set, but also just the ballpark, he hadn't hit that many home runs, and yet. Uh, by a lot of stats, he's just been really valuable without doing it in a conventional way. Uh, the very last player that I'll touch on, he'd be a trade candidate from the Diamondbacks, Carson Kelly, uh, who has been their primary catcher for most of the last three years. Before that, he is he was in that very unfortunate position of being Yadier Molina's backup and getting buried, and a lot of players have been screwed up throughout the last like decade and a half, just because they don't get to play behind Yachty and they freed him by trading him to the D backs early in that first year in 2019 with the D backs. He was on fire. One of the hottest hitters in the league. He came back down to earth since then he was, and he was pretty off his game in 2020, but then he had a nice rebound this past year. Something I've mentioned on the previous shows is if somebody had a strong year before the pandemic and they had, relatively stronger after the pandemic, I kind of just throw out 2020 for the most part. And he's, he's done that. He has solid position, uh, solid power for the position. And he does draw a whole lot of walks as well. That just give him a pretty decent floor as an offensive player. Um, At the same time, it's, it's difficult to like really covet somebody that's attached to how terrible the D-backs were this past year. Like that was uh, I think anybody coming out of that mess might not be the same as they were going into it. Uh, I feel really bad for him. The, the, the way that the D-backs are set up right now, they're still a few years away from digging themselves out of losing a million games. And they also have a couple catchers that are major league ready that can kind of fill Kelly's shoes. So he's got three years left of team control all in arbitration eligibility. And I think I bring up just because I'm pretty sure he'll be available. And as we're looking across the Marlins, we'll be looking at every conceivable route to address catcher. And he just seems to be in that nice middle ground where it's, I guess it's okay to prefer some of these guys on short-term deals where you're not taking a whole lot of risk. Um, but with, but with him at least you get a few bites at the apple because of the arbitration eligibility. He still has, left to go, and just because where the D-backs are at and that they have some decent internal options that the, the price, I don't think, would be all that high uh, to get him in terms of prospect capital. Only 27 years old, turns 28 in the middle of next year. That certainly, in the same way that Jan Gomes, he raises the floor considerably for what they have at catcher, and uh, they, they, they just need to be looking... I'll, I'll cast a really wide net at that position to try to figure it out. So he's a guy. He's a guy that yeah should be available.
1: And if you know, you know, I kind of compare him to to a different. You know, not to say that they're the same player, but as far as where they lie in respect to their team's respective rebuilds, is he kind of reminds me of a guy like Jacob Stallings, who I know the Marlins have kind of been yes. attached to it several times. Not as far as the overall skill set goes, though Stallings is. You know, he's a pretty good, a slightly above average major league catcher as far as what he provides offensively. But you look at their ages, and I believe Stallings is already 30 or 31. By the time the Pirates attempt to be competitive again, say, in three to five years, you don't know what kind of player Stallings is going to be, if he's more of an accessory piece or he's still an everyday catcher. I mean, you, most catchers don't play into their late 30s anyway but I think a guy like Carson Kelly who won't turn 28 until next July is still young enough to be, you know, somebody who, if he gives given a shot to play on a team that I think has burgeoning aspirations to be better, can succeed. And, you know, he put up a 107 OPS plus as a catcher this year. He, you know, he, got, he drew 44 walks in 98 games. If you can draw 60 plus walks as a catcher, over the course of a full season, say he plays 125, 130 games, you'll take that if the defense is good. And he's not, you know, he's not an elite defender, but he's pretty, you know, he's not the worst guy you can have back there. Granted, like you said, he is coming off catching among one of the worst pitching staffs in the sport. Uh, But yeah, I, I, I think though, like in relation to a guy like Stallings, in three to five years, you don't know if Carson Kelly is still going to be a great catcher to where you don't know what use you'd have for him in Arizona once the Diamondbacks are competitive again. And I think now wh- where where you try to salvage the best two, maybe two to three seasons of his career in out of Kelly, you want to put him on a team where he'll have a chance to contribute those good seasons to a team that wants to go to the playoffs. And I'm sh- obviously every team wants to be playoff bound at the end of every season. And they say that at the outset of spring training. But, you know, you give true serum to people in the front office, they know that you're not going to compete every year. And I don't think the Diamondbacks would do that next year. And I think Kelly could merit a decent return. I don't think he would cost a whole lot, but he could give them maybe a player that helps them out later on and could address a need for the Marlins where – we were, you know, sorely shorthanded as far as, you know, commendable catching goes. So, I yeah, I think he would be a nice addition to the team. He'd have to learn a new pitching staff. That's always kind of a hard transition. But, you know, he would have a chance to play every day as far as a catcher goes. And, yeah, uh, would definitely be an upgrade from where we were. I mean, at this point, anything's an upgrade, a catcher for the Marlins. But – it'd be a guy who has some offensive upside for sure.
0: You brought up Jacob Stallings. And if Craig Mish, if you're still listening at the one hour, 24 minute mark of this pod, <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll be covering Stallings on the next episode because he was just good enough defensively that he bumped himself up an aisle. Like he, he reached three more this past season. So he will be in aisle number four coming up uh, next week here on this podcast channel. We'll cover him. We'll cover everybody else in that tier right above this one. But this has been aisle three of Marlin's off-season shopping with Lewis Eddie Weiss. I'm Eli Sussman. Be sure to check out the previous editions of this series as well. We still got a couple episodes to go. I think we'll do two more episodes of this after. We'll do aisle four with guys between three and four war. And then we'll cover the superstars. We'll cover the highest tier of guys that were even above that threshold. So still a couple more of these shows to go. As always, let us know if we missed anybody in this tier aside from the dozen or so players that we had covered. And just as a refresher, the the overlaps that we had, we had Rasel Iglesias, we had Mark Canna and Chris Taylor, man, if they get just like two of those three, uh, this off season, that would be a long, that'd go a long way into making this successful winner for the Marlins. As we're, we're by the next time we record, uh, I think the world series will be over, uh, and we will, legitimately be in the full-blown off season, so very much looking forward to that and coming up with a direction for the marlins to go this winter thanks for listening as always make sure you're subscribed to this pod wherever you get your podcast and stay tuned for more go fish
1: take care